from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The last moments of George Floyd's life. He was killed on a street in Minneapolis by a police officer kneeling on his neck. And I thought, not a freaking again. I mean, it just was one of those uh, moments that just grabs you and says, this has to stop. Thetford Collins grew up in Arkansas in the 50s and 60s. He lived through the unrest and rage of that time. Uh, and what we're seeing today, particularly in the aftermath of George Floyd, uh, and other instances, um, the Eric Garner case, for example, you have uh, substantial cell phone video showing what has taken place. And I think that part of the difference in the activity now as opposed to then uh, is that people can get more incensed about what they see as opposed to what they hear. We'll examine that on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. What you hear is a man begging for his life on a street with dozens, if not more people, anxiously watching periodically making comments he was pleading with police officers to let him breathe plain and simple he just wanted to breathe as i watched the video i realized my own breathing was getting ragged and shallow waiting for the moment when the officer with his knee on george floyd's neck would finally stand up I thought he would stand up and lift Floyd up and put him into the police cruiser. But he kept kneeling, and Floyd kept begging. The crowd grew more and more anxious, and I began to realize that my eyes were filling with tears. I'm telling you this because as someone who's seen ugly things in war zones, and disaster areas around the country and the world for decades. On this day, I realized that as the minutes ticked away, I was watching a murder take place in a venue with the public watching while it was being streamed on social media. The killing happened in Minneapolis, one of the most diverse places in the U.S., and one of the last places I expected something like that to happen. And thanks in part to mobile phones and social media, 
the news spread like water through a broken dam. In hours, protests erupted there and swept the nation in the coming days. Eight days later, the full story still has not been told, but we're getting there. Here to help understand what happened is Adam Carter from WCCO Radio in Minneapolis. Well, this was something where it w- I woke up on, uh, I guess it would have been Tuesday morning, and this is something that, uh, first thing I do when I get up every morning, check the news, see what happened overnight. And it came to my attention quickly that a, a person had died in police custody. And that's something we've heard frequently from various police departments, not only here in the Twin Cities, but all over, and more on that in a little bit. But I hear that, and then the video uh, comes out, and we see this, and it immediately, when you see this video, you realize uh, there is something terribly wrong here, and that the first uh, description from the police is not at all accurate, uh, that there was something much more sinister than simply somebody dying in police custody. So... Going into the office, uh, 10.30 on Tuesday, that Tuesday, the, uh, the 26th, I knew that things were going to change rapidly. Uh, now that we're here 10 days or so later, did I think that they'd change in the way they did? No. But um, it's just, it's been an incredible week yeah. plus, and it just... I mean, you could tell immediately that it was going to be a, a significant story, but we've had those before, sadly, in the yeah. Twin Cities. So what specific thing, or was there a specific thing that told you immediately this was going to be a really big deal? I think, uh, I'm trying to think when I realized that they were going to the next level. I think even that first night, we did have some uh, rain that Tuesday night, which kept things uh, rather quiet. But then the next night when we started seeing um, fires being started, um, uh, more than just civil unrest, that's when I thought, okay, this is, this is different. I, I haven't seen that before on this large scale where uh, we've had protests, we've had uh, occupation, occupation of uh, police precincts here before after a police shooting, meaning uh, that they were camped out of a Minneapolis police precinct for several weeks after the death of Jamar Clark. But I've never seen this sort of uh, feeling of uh, violence, uh, this uh, urgency to it where we have fires and um, people kind of overrunning parts of the city. And, And also, what was different, honestly, for those first two nights was it sure seemed like the police had just backed down and said, okay, we're not going to be a part of this. It's too, it's too hot. Uh, the, the tensions are too high. And in retrospect, um, there's been a lot of questions as to that. Why, why was it so the police response quiet that first two nights when a lot of it got out of control? Um, that, is that that's the night uh, that the police precinct was burned? Is that correct? Yeah, that was. Th- I think that was Thursday. These days run together. It was either Wednesday or Thursday night where the police precinct burned. To, and that's another point where you're sitting at home, and it's just another level. I was sitting at home there. I'd completed my shift that night, and I see uh, a tweet from uh, one of the national outlets saying that the precinct building was on fire. And I immediately turned on the TV, and sure enough, it was on fire. And that is another one of those moments where 
I cannot believe this has escalated to this far. And again, yeah, that was either Wednesday or Thursday night and just another step in this and that, okay, how, how much more are we going to see? How, how out of control will this become? And, it, you know, you're thinking with the weekend coming up at that point, um, uh, what is going to turn this tide? What is going to um, calm uh, folks down? What is going to change the, change the outcome here? And a lot of, a lot of questions, and, and we saw the, the, the response then from, from the state and local officials really change after that night. I, looking at the video myself, I realized... I was sitting there watching this thing and, and I wasn't, my, my breathing, you know, wasn't normal. Yeah. I, I, I realized that I, it was kind of ragged and, and hitched and I think what was happening was that I was waiting for this to kind of, watching the video of the, the, the death of George Floyd, I was yeah. waiting for it to kind of end. You know, I was, yeah. I was waiting for the police officer to, to stand up, to get off of his neck, to pick him up. Yep. put him in the cruiser and it didn't happen and then yeah. I realized my eyes were just filling with tears well, I can't imagine and you know it, to me it was a situation where I realized that I had watched a man who was under duress obviously in handcuffs on the ground from the first you know part of the video that we saw we heard it but I watched this man go from at least being able to speak speak coherently and, and, and plead and tell them what his situation was to a man who started to moan and ramble, calling for his mother who's been deceased. And then I realized he was bleeding from the, the face, and then he stopped. Yep. And I realized I had just seen someone killed. Yep. And in front of people on a street being streamed on social media. And I just wonder... How that struck you in your newsroom when when that started to sink in, or if it if it actually went went that way for you guys? Uh, absolutely. Uh, look, the horror of that video uh, cannot be escaped. I don't care where you come from or how you grew up. And the thing that struck me that a lot of uh, us pointed that, that a lot of we in the newsroom pointed out the next day too is when we've had questionable uh, questionable. When, when we've had questionable deaths at the hands of police before, there's always that uh, argument, especially when it comes from people defending police officers, saying, look, these are split-second decisions officers make that are life and death. This was no split-second de decision. This was eight minutes, almost nine minutes. And uh, just watching that video, uh, looking at the police officer, Derek Chauvin's face, uh, it's awful. It, it, it's... It, and, and the response, I think, is indicative of that. I mean, I have, I have yet to hear from one person, even in police circles, defend what that officer did. And so it was roundly uh, criticized. And uh, I think that did that add to the level of outrage? Sure it did. But there were also many other issues um, that led to this and with the backdrop of where we're at as a country right now um, the fact that there's a lot of people unemployed because of the other once in a lifetime news story that's happening <laughs> the pandemic yes uh, 
that adds to it too. And it, it just, this was a, the powder keg that went off and now we're seeing it uh, spread all over the country and the world. That's the other thing that gets me, JJ, is that seeing these protests in other parts of the world with people saying George Floyd's name. Um, yes. Uh, the, the impact of that, okay, we were here on, on Monday, Monday night, Tuesday morning. That's the first time I've ever heard of George Floyd. And now uh, we'll never forget that name. And everybody all over the world is saying that name. Did I think on Tuesday morning that this story was going to have that impact? I did not. But here we are. It was just such a gut-wrenching thing to watch that yeah. man's life pour out of him Horrible. on a dirty street. Yep. With people begging the police to help him. Yeah. And people around the world can resonate with that, especially in many countries where sure. they aren't democratic. They aren't free right. like we are. Yes. And that, Go ahead. No, I was just going to, I was agreeing with you. That's something that you'd see in a third world country where people don't get due process. And uh, he sure didn't get due process. And yeah. uh, just terrifying. It's, it's, it's video you're never going to forget. So, um, Minnesota, Minneapolis in specifically, how much damage has been done or was done? Is there, does anyone know yet? Uh, the uh, the physical, think, the physical damage, I should say. The physical damage, I you know, the the dollar amount, I, we're not sure, but um, it is. I mean, we're talking. I think the latest on businesses that were destroyed, upwards of sixty plus, I believe, uh, in Minneapolis, and then more in St. Paul, of course. Wow. Um, and a lot of these are businesses that are um, critical to that uh, critical to the uh, South Minneapolis. Um, the, that's the sad thing about this: the story that you know, grocery stores burned, uh, pharmacies burned, and then on top of that, because of the uh, because of the civil unrest, um, Metro Transit, our our public transportation system, shut down. So. There's a lot of people in that part of the city who can't get food, they can't get their medicine, and they can't get on a bus or a train to go get um, what they need. Um, that's the sad part, but three or four days into this, the, the, the bright spot in all this is the outpouring mm -hmm. we've seen in that community, the help that people uh, have given to that community, uh, and the response we're seeing from the residents of that community. We had reporters out there talking today about the rebuilding efforts and the cleanup that's happening and then the rebuilding efforts. And they're adamant that this is our community. We want to rebuild this community. community. We, sure, we, we, we need some help, but we want to claim this spot as our own. It is our own, and we want it to keep it our own. And when we open these doors to these businesses, when they rebuild, uh, we want to make sure that we support them because they've supported us and, and we miss them. Yeah. Is there something that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that would sort of summarize where we are now in Minneapolis uh, and even broader if you want to go that I haven't asked you about that you think is necessary to discuss? Well, I just think, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people say over the last week or so, boy, I just, I never thought I'd see this here. I never thought we'd see this in Minneapolis. Uh, the old cliche of Minnesota nice, which if you're from Minnesota, you can kind of get sick of that. But, and my response to that is, 
if you really didn't think that could happen here, then you really weren't paying attention because as nice as we like to think our quality of life is here in the upper Midwest in Minnesota, we have a long way to go when it comes to uh, racial relate race relations. We have one of the worst um, achievement gaps in the country, if not the worst in our school system. Um, and this, if you didn't believe it could happen here, you just didn't pay attention. And I think as sad as that is, I think there's real hope that this is a significant enough event and we are, for lack of a better term, ground zero of what has happened here, that we need to seize this moment. We need to take what is happening here and finally make significant changes not only to uh, how the Minneapolis Police Department operates, but um, how all law enforcement operates, how all right. politicians uh, mm -hmm. view communities of color, how regular white Minnesota interacts with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. We need to seize this moment. Otherwise, sadly, it'll be wasted. You know, yeah, and I'll just end with this, and you can yeah. feel free to respond. The thing that really caught my attention and has caught my attention is when you look at most of these protests, mm -hmm. not just in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, but in other places around the country, I don't know what the, the breakdown is, but to me it looks like something like maybe uh, protesters that are not of African descent. In other yeah. words, non-black protesters seem to outnumber the number of black protesters by two or three to one. Is that mm -hmm. just me looking at uh, selected video uh, no. images of that, or is, is that real? No, that's real. I'm for sure the case here. And honestly, when we've had uh, other um, police killings, Philando Castile, Jamar Clark, uh, the majority of protesters are, I'll just, they, they're white. And that, you know, that might have something to do with the racial makeup of our state, but... Um, that no, that is 100% accurate, and I think the the people maybe who sat on the sidelines before speaking of, of white people, um, I I think that that changes with with this event. I think there are more people getting involved, and more people saying, "Look, it's time to open your eyes to what's happening here in Minnesota. It's not just in other parts of the country, and you have to see people. You got to hear people." And yeah. I think that um, that is changing. Yeah. You know, and I'll say this and uh, let you go, but thanks so much for your time. This puts Minnesota in the place where history will tell, I believe history will tell the story yep. that Minnesota was where that turnaround started in Minneapolis. I mean, as, as, as hard as and difficult as things have been in the last few days and there's going to be some more difficult days ahead. I can almost guarantee that. But it seems to me that Minnesota has established itself uh, in history, in the history books of the future, as the place where this started to turn around. I sure hope so. And I think there's five million people in Minnesota that hope the same thing. We, you know, very, we're very parochial here. We love when people notice us uh, because mm -hmm. it's the Midwest is often flyover country, and we, anytime we're mentioned, we get all excited about it as a group. But if, if that happens, if, if the change really starts here and is contagious, then uh, that is something truly we can be proud of here. Absolutely. Adam Carter, news editor and news anchor, WCCO Radio in Minneapolis. Adam, thank you for your time. 
JJ, thank you. What's taken place since George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis is very similar to what happened during the 1960s. Uprisings, unrest, violence, rioting. And in order to get a look at just how close those two time periods are, we turn to someone from the 1950s and 60s. Joining us with that part of the story is Thedford Collins, a retired vice president from the Weyerhaeuser Company, and also a child of the 50s and 60s who grew up in the Deep South in Arkansas. When I saw the video, I, I just, it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was mind-numbing, if you will, uh, to see somebody's life being taken from them in that way. And the cavalier look, it appeared to me, uh, on the face of the person who had his knee on um, Mr. Floyd's neck. Um, and the, the thought I had was actually the, the number of times that uh, we've, we've seen this now. Uh, the thought went to my children, to my grandchildren, because, you know, young black men, in my view, are c considerably at risk. Uh, some people think that uh, they are more at risk uh, from police uh, homicide than they are from some of these diseases that are out here. So, I mean, all of those things kind of ran through my mind, and I thought, not a freaking again. I mean, it just was one of those uh, moments that just grabs you and says, this has to stop. And after that happened, what did you do next? Once you had seen this, began to process it, what did, what happened next? I called my grandsons and said, you guys, you know, if you haven't seen this, you need to see this. And we need to continue to reinforce for you um, the whole message that we've talked to you about, about when you come get into a confrontation or if you would get not a confrontation, but even if you get stopped by the police, I mean, you, you just have to have that conversation and you have to have it over and over and over. And one of the things that I thought about actually was one grandson who has a number of friends who are white and they do all the same kinds of things that teenagers do. And um, we, 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 we share with him that because you guys are friends don't mean that the police uh, is going to view you the same way. And you need to understand that. And as it turns out, they, uh, all of them were uh, in their cars going someplace. And my grandson was not in the lead car, uh, but he, and he was not on the back end, but he's the one that got pulled over. And it brought home for him what we had been saying. And uh, so my thought was to call and remind him that now that he's a young man and he's out and about, he needs to be mindful of what had happened to him before. Thetford, you were a witness uh, in the broader sense of many of the injustices and much of the strife and trouble that took place in the 50s, 60s, and then 70s as well. I'm wondering, can you give us a sense of how closely what took place in Minneapolis and then across the country and is taking place now compares to what took place in the 60s? Well, J.J., I think that uh, there really is a world of difference in the kinds of reactions, one, that we're seeing, and two, uh, with the transparency that is there because of the use now of uh, electronic equipment uh, and digital equipment, particularly uh, cell phones. Uh, back in the 1960s, early 70s, when there was unrest, uh, all you had to rely on was what was available to you through news broadcasts. 
and you really didn't have any citizens that could have any way of sharing a visual of what had taken place. You had plenty of individuals in many instances who could share with you their verbal account. Uh, and what we're seeing today, particularly in the aftermath of George Floyd, uh, and other instances, um, the Eric Garner case, for example, you have uh, substantial cell phone video showing what has taken place. And I think that part of the difference in the activity now as opposed to then uh, is that people can get more incensed about what they see as opposed to what they hear. And so being able to see these instances has sparked in people uh, an interest and a need to act that didn't uh, get expressed before simply because you were talking about somebody's words. The the riots of the 60s and what's taking place now, um, obviously there are some similarities, but uh, you as a person who was on the ground during the 60s, during those times, I wonder how all of this strikes you now. Well, I think that uh, had we had the opportunity to uh, get the kind of media exposure that is available now, we may not have now, if you will. Uh, I think that the motivational aspect of what's taking place now is because people all over this country and people all over the world can see what happened and understand the inhumanity of what took place and don't want to see that kind of inhumanity again. And so it's driving people to act. The lynchings of the, the 60s and before. A lot of people have compared this situation in Minneapolis to that. What's your view? I think that part of what has taken place um, is that while we, uh, and it's, it's borrowing a phrase actually, but these kinds of things are not particularly new that what what is new is the opportunity for them to be uh, photographed, for them to be uh, shown to folks visually. I mean, in, in the 60s, what you would have uh, is a murder of some sort, and all you would have would be a black and white photo, perhaps of uh, some person hanging from a tree or some person being shot. Uh, what happens now is you see it in real in real life, in real time, and that makes a real difference. These images that we see and the instantaneous nature of those images and the fact that they are broadcast and podcast and streamed uh, around the world, there are billions of people who see these things, but they're playing out on the streets of the U.S., something that most of us never thought we would see again. So what took place in the 60s and since then was never really finished. That business has never been finished. And I'm wondering, what do you think it would take to finish that business? I think it's going to take real moral leadership. And that leadership is going to have to come from all facets of life. It's going to have to come from politicians. Uh, it's going to have to come from community leaders. And it's going to have to come from uh, ministers or preachers, if you will. Uh, you know, we have this divide between evangelicals and others in the religious community and we have to find a way that a moral compass is a moral compass is a moral compass and it doesn't matter that your politics today fit where i want to go if i'm a, a leader of whatever but that the issue itself uh, has to be one that you can use your moral compass because we all operate from the same moral compass
And until we get there, we're going to have, I think, some continuing problems. The thing that has struck me most as a journalist, first of all, someone who covers national security on a daily basis, is the merging of forces uh, of U.S. power that we never thought would be displayed on the streets here in the States. And, you know, you talk about that question about moral authority, uh, and you also see how all of these things are blurring right now together, and people seem to be lost on all of this. So how do we sort that out in your mind? I think that it comes to, it, you have to find a way to get people in small groups to talk to each other. Uh, back in the 70s, um, <laughs> I'm dating myself, I guess, part of what happens as a, a young adult in Arkansas at that time, we began meeting with business leaders and religious leaders, community leaders, to talk about the kinds of things that could take place to involve more people uh, in being sure that justice was served and that there was more equality uh, for people, and particularly as they tried to get jobs. And so I think that that's the kind of thing we have to do now. We have to uh, meet more regularly with people who really want to see our society improve uh, and find ways to influence what's taking place so that everybody gets an equal shot. So um, thinking about getting that equal shot, are all the protests and all, is all the rioting and all of that, are they moving the needle? I think the short answer is yes. I think when you talk of longer, uh, the protests are moving the, the needle. The, uh, the rioting uh, is not being helpful. And what the protest is doing and what the protest is showing is that this is not just a black problem anymore. This is a country problem, and people recognize that. I think that what you will see as a result of this is what I'm praying that we will see as a result of this uh, is more people coming together talking about being sure uh, that we provide equal opportunity to people. I think, you know, what we've done now is we're going through this pandemic. And as a part of going through this pandemic, we closed public schools. And in closing public schools, we have talked about doing distance learning. Well, when you talk about uh, being sure everybody has an equal shot and you talk about distance learning, you can't do that because there are so many people who are poor, particularly people of, of color, uh, who don't have uh, digital equipment in their homes, who don't have access to the Internet, broadband, things like that. And so they get left behind. We've got to find a way to be sure that we don't leave people behind and that we give them an opportunity uh, to get all of the information that everyone else is getting. You know, JJ, when I was going to school uh, in, the, in the Deep South, all of our uh, state-provided learning materials was hand-me-down. In other words, it had gone to the – and I grew up in a segregated uh, society – uh, it had all the new books always went to the white high school. We then got them. And after that, uh, you know, they got discarded. And so we can't continue to do that with this digital uh, information that we have. People have to have access to the same information at the same time. If we give young people the opportunity at a young age to have the same opportunity, then we move away from this separate but equal that we uh, currently have. 
Does national security play a role in solving these problems? I think absolutely national security does. I think that national security is dependent upon everybody having a, a, a vested interest in being sure that we remain safe. And the way you do that is you share uh, information with people. You give, uh, you make sure that uh, what I like to say is charity begins at home and then spreads abroad. And so you make sure that you are feeding the mental uh, capacity of all of our citizens and sharing with them what's happening around the world so that they have the opportunity to participate with us in keeping this country safe. Elements of national security, economics, obviously uh, the, the ability to project power, clearly the military, and then there's the intelligence community. You know, a number of uh, those elements of national security, people are distrustful or or afraid to trust those elements of national security. So is that a part of this dialogue that we need to have right now? I think that it is. I mean, you know, trust is a big a big factor in almost everything that we do. And if we uh, back up just for, you know, eight days and go to Minnesota, uh, we see that the result of what happened with George Floyd, uh, the whole question of can we trust the prosecutor to do what the right thing is. And even to the extent that and my belief is that they changed the prosecutor from the uh, from the county prosecutor to the state prosecutor uh, because that was a, an issue of trust. And you've got to have trust to be able to move forward. Do you have any final thoughts you want to add on this that I haven't asked you about? I, I really don't. I mean, I think that um, where I am, is that I'm in a posture in my life where I want to give back and help to build the communities. Uh, and when I say that, I do mean plural. Uh, I want uh, young people, uh, the ages of my grandchildren and younger, to be able to have a life where they really do and they really are judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Thetford Collins, retired vice president of the Weyerhaeuser Company and a child of the 60s who remembers rioting and burning and all of the unrest and problems in the U.S. between blacks and whites, sharing with us some thoughts about the way forward. I can guarantee you we'll be back to this story and soon. In the meantime, that's it for this episode of Target USA. If you have any questions or comments about the show, send me an email to jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, that's one word, at wtop.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter and please subscribe to our podcast. We're at TUSA Podcast on Twitter. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast on Twitter. And also, if you want more national security news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, I'm Autumn Calabrese, and I have a question for you. How do you do life? I might be a superstar trainer, but I'm also a boy mom, sister, daughter, friend, and entrepreneur. You might think my life is all working out and cooking healthy, delicious recipes, but trust me, there is so much more to it, and this is it. This is all of those real moments you talk about with your family and friends. 
Ever wonder what else life has to offer? Bring your curious appetite and let's do life together. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and PodcastOne.com. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.